When the Allied forces hit the beaches of Normandy on D-Day in June of 1944, everyone was well aware of the importance of success. Gaining a foothold on the beaches was the first step in the liberation of France, placing a force on the ground that would go on to steamroll to Berlin, ending the war outright. The plan was vast, multifaceted, and was as audacious as it was complicated, hinging on the cooperation of every level of the joint military system. Included in this system was a man named Garbo, a man who, squirrelled away in a London office, not only had the job of convincing the Nazis that the invasion force didn't exist, but of also conjuring an entirely fictional force, one million strong, from thin air and presenting them as living, breathing flesh and blood. Of course, one man could not hope to do such a thing alone. Fortunately, Garbo had 27 spies under his command to help him. That was the story as far as the Nazis were concerned, at least. In truth, Garbo's agents were only as real as the stories that he himself created for them. Out of sight in his small office, Garbo weaved a cast of characters into a plausible tapestry of espionage that, even years after the war had ended and the truth was out, many of the people involved still struggled to believe. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories, Season 6, Episode 7. I'm Ben, the host as always, and it's good to be back, it's good to be uh, at the microphone again for the second time this week. Uh, you might notice the episode's a little bit late. I, I won't go into too much of why, but uh, just I'll just say that it's, it's been a week to, to put behind me, I think. Um, and yeah, it sort of culminated in the in the, um, the the episode being recorded and then edited. And then when I listened to it back, it was just utterly screwed and I had to re-record everything. So this is the second time recording. But anyway, let's pop that little violin away and uh, crack on. This episode is a, a really fun one and I'm a, a super excited to do it. I've had it in the, in the, in the making for a, for a long while now. So yeah, let's crack on with it. This episode is called Garbo and the Ghost Spies of World War II. Born on the 14th of February 1912 in Barcelona, Spain, Juan Pujol Garcia was the third of the four Garcia children born to Juan Pujol Pena, a wealthy industrialist who owned a dye factory, and Mercedes Garcia, who worked at the dye factory. This rather complicated relationship led to Pujol's father not legally recognising the children as his own until Pujol was four years old. Despite this bastard status, most certainly not a good thing in the eyes of the Catholic society he grew up amongst, he was afforded a comfortable upbringing that would have been the envy of many. A somewhat wayward child, he was a handful for his parents, frequently causing trouble due to his propensity for adventure and tendency to drift into his own little world. At the age of seven, he was enrolled into a religious boarding school, which he utterly hated, and he coasted with disinterest into the realm of the average academically. Though his personal interests in history and languages did flourish. His school life, only broken up by the weekly visits from his father every Sunday, may have been painfully dull to Pujol, but in truth, they did shield him from the dangers of living at home. In the 1920s, Barcelona was one of Spain's most turbulent cities during an increasingly turbulent period. A cosmopolitan hub of culture, art and architecture, it was somewhat, conversely, a conservative city living under the insular nationalism that thrived during the dictatorship of Miguel Primo de Rivera, who had recently led the military coup against the parliamentary government and installed himself as Prime Minister. 
In the streets, a social war raged between trade unionists and industrialists who regularly hired gunmen to carry out assassinations of key targets. Pujol's father, a prominent industrialist and factory owner, was far from safe from the aggression, and as such, he eventually moved his family away from the city. In his new suburban home, Pujol continued to thrive culturally, becoming enraptured by dance and poetry, and continued to despise school. When he turned 15, he finally made the decision to drop out, a move which was accepted, rather surprisingly, by his father, providing that he found himself a job, an ultimatum which Pujol welcomed. His first foray into the chaotic adult world of the 1920s saw him taking on an apprenticeship in a hardware store, but the menial tasks got the better of him and he quit before his first month was up, choosing instead to commit himself to self-study in the family library. Following a gruelling struggle with appendicitis that saw him hospitalised at the age of 19, he embarked upon a second apprenticeship, this time in chicken farming, learning poultry management at the Royal Academy of Poultry Farming, which is where he met his future fiancée, a young, devoutly religious Catholic named Margarita. His home life was severed by compulsory military service in 1933, which was a difficult proposition for Pajol, who was by now something of a pacifist. And a year later, his father fell victim to a flu pandemic that ripped through the country. Devastated at the loss of his father, Pujol turned his hand to chicken farming, but the farm he invested in failed spectacularly, along with his second business investment, that of a movie theatre, which also struggled financially until its inevitable bankruptcy. His own brother would later admit that Pujol was just not a naturally competent businessman. As if life could have been any more of a roller coaster. The Spanish Civil War broke out in 1936 between the leftist Republicans and the Nationalists, and at the same time his father's factory, now family-run, was overthrown by the workers. Not particularly keen to fight for either side in the conflict, Pujol instead holed up inside Margarita's family home, along with her brother and father, isolating themselves from the outside and doing their best to avoid the conflict altogether. It was a situation that had a somewhat inevitable outcome, when their house was raided by the police, who arrested Pujol for desertion and tossed him in jail. Whilst Pujol sat in his cell, facing down a potential execution, Margarita got busy organising a jailbreak for him via an anti-communist Catholic organisation named the Socorro Blanco, formed to provide support for people imprisoned due to their religious beliefs. During his escape, he was handed the address of a safe house on a piece of paper, which he travelled to under cover of darkness. The house was owned by a Catholic taxi driver, his wife and their son. However, after they left in 1937, Pujol was left there alone, to hide in the silence and darkness in a supposedly abandoned house. His only outside communication was a helper who visited once per week to bring him food. Eventually, fake papers were secured and Pujol was able to leave the house and escape the city, Abandoning Margarita altogether, he set himself up with a job managing a chicken farm just south of the French border, with one eye on skipping the country at the first possible opportunity. Realising that it wasn't just going to be a matter of hopping the border, Pujol signed up to join the Republican army, with an aim to hand himself over to the nationalists. The plan was not a subtle work of deception. He trained as a signal operator, and then, in January of 1938, bolted for the Nationalist Front, where he was promptly captured, questioned and placed into a concentration camp. Finding himself quickly disliking the Nationalists as much as he disliked the Republicans, 
He was now in something of a bind politically. Fortunately, at least as far as his physical situation, he was able to use his family connections and was bailed out of the camp by another Catholic organisation whose father had held strong ties whilst he was alive. Suffering from bronchitis, Pujol spent the rest of the Civil War resting up in hospital where he deliberated upon his new position. He wound up managing a hotel where he met the new love of his life, Araceli Gonzalez Carballo, a nurse and a dreamer, much like himself. Pujol fell for her instantly, forgetting all about Margarita, who by now belonged in a distant, much more innocent past, a time long before the Civil War when life was simpler. Now, in 1939, on the eve of the Second World War, Pujol and Araceli moved to Madrid, where Pujol took a job managing a small, divey hotel named the Majestic. Watching on as the Nazi influence crept through the country as France fell to the Nazi invasion, and as Spain grew closer to the Italian and German fascists by the day, Pujol felt he had found a new purpose within his hatred for the officials that surrounded him. He would later say that in life, there were three types of people, those that made things happen, those that watched things happen, and those that wondered what had happened. Feeling himself firmly in the second group, he began thinking of a way that he could work himself into the first. Listening to the BBC radio broadcasts of war news, he formed a new plan, a plan that he hoped would be far more suiting for himself and his bold, adventurous new wife, and would allow him to fight for a cause that he finally believed in. After enjoying a successful period of counter-espionage prior to its founding during the First World War, the British Secret Service, commonly known as the MI5, saw its budgets and personnel slashed throughout the interwar years, reducing it to a skeleton staff of only 12 with a budget that would buy little more than the tea that they drank. Having failed to adapt to the times by the outbreak of the Second World War, the Secret Service's usefulness was at an all-time low a matter not at all helped by the attitudes of the British commanders themselves, who looked down their noses at the branch, refusing to see the concept of espionage as anything other than ungentlemanly cowardice. Chronically underprepared for the war, it took until 1940 for the British to begin to take espionage and counter-espionage seriously, when the entire structure from the top town was reinvigorated by an injection of new talent. A staff much more open to the possibilities a good espionage bureau could provide to the war effort. The 20 Committee, so-called for its initials, two crosses standing for double cross, formed under the leadership of John Cecil Masterman, an Oxford-educated cricketer and university lecturer. The committee tasked itself with capturing and turning German spies within Britain in order to gather intelligence against the German war machine. As it developed, the MI5 also began to see the value of using the same network to deceive and spread disinformation back to the Germans, as unwholesome and unsportsmanlike as the practice was. Led by a group of eccentrics and outsiders, the British slowly embraced the concept, and by the end of the war would find themselves entirely bound in its web of illusions. In contrast to the British, the Germans entered into the Second World War with a full-fledged intelligence network focused heavily on espionage and deception with a personnel of over a thousand. The Abwehr focused on intelligence gathering, whilst the Sicherheitsdienst, or the SD, was the secret service arm of the SS, reporting directly to Heinrich Himmler and the Führer himself, operating as a sister group to the Gestapo and tasked with, among other things, intelligence gathering alongside sniffing out German opposition and neutralising any threat to the Nazi rule within Germany. 
As large a system as it was, it was somewhat bloated and the messages often became confused, but it was undeniably a larger system than that of the British. As war unfolded across the continent, the German secret service system fanned out, creating a complex network of spies and agents who would strike fear, spread deception and amass intelligence on an industrial level. Spain, who were officially neutral in 1940, was riddled with Abwehr agents who would spy on the comings and goings of freight, aircraft, academics and politicians, passing details onto Germany, giving the Nazis a visual on the ground of a country that had become a port positively thronging with information and promised to serve as an eye into more distant lands. In Madrid, Pujol now found himself in a city which writhed above the snake pit laying barely concealed beneath the surface and his imagination ran wild. As Pujol and Araceli got on with the business of running their hotel in Madrid, news and rumour of the war circled around them constantly. The BBC, which broadcast a news programme globally, was a particular favourite of Pujol's, who, following on from his experience of growing up under a dictatorship, found himself in standing opposition to the fascist Nazi party from the outset, and as the war rolled on, the rumours that circled of Nazi war crimes only served to heighten both his anger towards the Nazis and his drive to do something about it. In January of 1941, he strolled into the British Embassy in Madrid and offered himself up as a spy for the Allies. Unsurprisingly, he was turned away with little more than a raised eyebrow. Araceli tried the same shortly after, and she failed equally. Where their plans to become spies had originated from was anyone's guess, but both being individuals prone to bouts of romanticism and adventure, one can presume a fairly large portion of their imagination had played a pivotal role. With his feelings that he needed to do something for the good of humanity and a growing hatred of the Nazis as his guiding motivation, Pujol confessed later that his plans at that point were fairly confused. Whatever it was that drove the pair to become so enamoured with the concept of turning spy for the Allied forces, both Pujol and Araceli were now fairly committed to the idea, unfettered to let a single rejection stand in their way. Pujol came up with a new plan. Realising that his value to the British as he stood was fairly low, his main talent was in languages, speaking Spanish, French and Portuguese, but he could not yet actually speak English and his training as a chicken farmer was probably not seen as a particularly transferable set of skills. In order to fix this, he did the only thing that made any sense. He approached the Germans and offered to spy for them instead. His thinking here was that if he could insert himself into the Nazi spy network that was currently thriving in Spain, he could then use the information he would gather as a bargaining chip for the British to take him seriously. Throwing himself into this new plan, he studied Nazi material intensely, trying to understand how the Nazi mindset worked, learning the terminology, the politics, the structure of the party and the culture of the converted. His aim was not to learn how the Nazis were seen, but what it meant to actually be a Nazi. Once he had convinced himself that he had read enough, he waltzed into the German embassy and offered himself for the cause. The Germans were, apparently, somewhat less scrupulous in their recruitment than the British, as, following the single trip, Pujol found himself sitting in a cafe awaiting a meeting with a Spanish Abwehr agent named Frederico. Frederico was Spanish-born to a German father and a keen Nazi sympathiser. Something of a toff, he worked in Madrid as a spy recruiter and handler. 
This first meeting between Pujol and Federico was a rather basic affair, a short interview where Federico could sum up the meaning of the man and separate the flakes from the real deals. In 1941, there were many Spanish who would have been prepared to offer themselves up for positions on both sides of the war, hoping to score themselves diplomatic documents, visas, or just a plane ticket out of the country. Immediately, Pujol's research paid off, as he extolled his love for the Führer, his passion for the Nazi politic, and his wish for a victorious Reich. Impressed, Federico set up a second meeting two days later, where they floated the idea of needing an agent that they could send abroad to Britain. In his favour, Pujol had a passport already prepared, the result of an earlier alcohol smuggling mission across the Portuguese border that he had undertaken on behalf of a well-to-do hotel guest with diplomatic connections in the hopes that it would curry him favour when offering his services to the British. Federico was on board, thrilled with Pujol's passion for the Nazis, and he shipped him out to Lisbon with a thousand pesetas, suggesting he attempted to gain himself an exit visa. It was early days, but Pujol saw a future for himself and Aricelli, a future doing something that mattered. And so, on April 26, 1941, he left Madrid for Lisbon, leaving his wife and newborn child behind until he could arrange for their accommodation and travel. Once he arrived in Lisbon, he checked into the Hotel Suco Atlantico, an average hotel with close connections to the rat's nest of spies and Spanish agents that infested the cafes, bars and casinos of the city. His first port of call was to the British Embassy, where he attempted to apply for a visa. However, was promptly turned away and told to return to Madrid and apply from there. At this point of the war, Lisbon was crowded with refugees who were seeking travel from the officially neutral city and the embassy saw Pujol as just another chancer looking for an exit. With the upfront approach failing, he instead enacted a rather different plan B, which came about after he met with Senor Souza, one of the hotel owner's friends who happened to be incredibly well-connected and in possession of a diplomatic visa. Pujol schmoozed his way into Souza's good books, befriending him by taking him out on dinner evenings and gambling binges in the local casinos. One night, whilst the pair were in the middle of a particularly extravagant casino binge, he excused himself from the tables, snuck into Souza's room and took photos of the diplomatic visa, which he then used to have an engraving created that he took to a printer, ordering 200 copies to be made up under the guise that he was a diplomat himself. His logic dictated that 200 copies seemed far less suspicious than a single print, and so it apparently proved, as the prints were made with no questions asked. Pujol then set about getting a stamp made from the photograph copy, telling the stamp makers that his old one had become worn and blurry, allowing him to stamp his freshly printed documents with an exact replica of the official stamp. His mugshot finished the document off to perfection, and Pujol found himself with a completed diplomatic visa, the first fruits of his new life as a spy, which was turning out to be just as thrilling as he had always imagined. When he returned to Federico in Madrid, he came prepared, filling the agent's head with a complicated story of money laundering and deception that he'd cooked up using the characters that he'd met during his time in Lisbon, filling the fiction with names and faces of the real-life agents that he had seen, propped up at the bars and seated in the cafes around his hotel. He flashed Frederico his forged visa, and in order to give his story even more clout, told the agent that he was on his way to the Spanish Foreign Office right now, and that an official car was already planned to pick him up once he was done with the meeting. A car really did collect him upon his leaving the cafe, an event carefully orchestrated by Pujol 
to ensure that Federico could see him climb in. However, it had nothing to do with the Foreign Office and was, in fact, the regular old hotel car service from where he had been staying, driven by the hotel manager's son. The deception, however, was enough for Frederico, who was positively thrilled with Pujol's quick infiltration of the Spanish government offices. At the next meeting, he set up a series of training exercises with Pujol, who had now been given the codename Alaric, briefing him on the proper usage of invisible ink, writing in code, using German ciphers, and passing him a list of information that the Germans were keen to learn from London. After he was fully prepared, Federico handed over $3,000, concealed in a tube of toothpaste and a can of shaving foam, and wished his new agent well, excited to hear from him once he had touched down in England. Pujol, however, had absolutely no intention of travelling to England. Instead, he picked up Aracelli and their son, and the whole family travelled to Lisbon, shacking up in a room that Pujol had previously scouted on his earlier trips and rented for the purpose. Now a fully-fledged German spy, codename and all, he presented himself once more to the British Embassy, unloading all of this information that he had gathered from his training with Frederico. But once more, much to his dismay and utter disbelief, they turned him down flat. It was a severe blow to Pujol's plans, who now found himself having to fake his arrival on British shores in order to maintain his position with the Germans and buy himself some time. The problem was that Pujol had never stepped foot in England and could still not yet speak English. With absolutely no first-hand experience of life in England, Pujol, acting as Agent Alaric, began crafting a world built up entirely from his imagination. He purchased and ordered from the British Embassy as many pamphlets, train timetables and maps as he could and began familiarising himself with the foreign place names and then he began to write his secret messages to his German handlers. The plan was relatively simple on the surface. He had told the Germans that he had met a freight pilot on his journey to England who was sympathetic to the German cause and had managed to time into delivering his mail from England to Lisbon for him. In reality, Pujol just nipped down to the PO box that he'd set up for his messages and delivered them by hand. The next step for Alaric was to set up a sprawling spy network, gather intelligence and infiltrate the British war machine as best he could. From his writing bureau in Spain, he set about inventing the first of his new connections, a Portuguese Nazi sympathiser on the Bristol coast. There was also the Swiss immigrant based in Liverpool. Soon, Pujol had agents dotted throughout the country, a network which he codenamed Arabelle, all of which was entirely fictional and based on a few maps and pamphlets. Each new member of the spy network was given a backstory, a complex set of characteristics and a living, breathing life complete with all the dramas of a civilian living in a country at war. Some of them were relatives of one another, such as the Venezuelan brothers Benedict and Moonbeam, one of whom was a student, whilst the other was simply a restless character who took to touring the south coast. Sure, Pujol got himself muddled from time to time with matters of currency, which he'd clearly never used for himself, but he created such complete reports with such minute details the occasional blunder coasted straight past the Germans in Spain, who always wrote back after every message, thrilled with the new information that he was able to glean. Things coasted along in this way for a while, until he was asked to obtain pamphlets from the Oxford Institute of Statistics. Obviously, this presented something of a hurdle. If Peugeot was unable to obtain the leaflets, the Germans might begin to wonder just how believable his reports actually were. On the other hand, 
If he could supply the pamphlets, then he would have provided fairly robust proof that he must have been on the ground in Oxford. There was every possibility that the leaflets were just a test to establish exactly this. There was nothing else for it. Pujol was going to have to go and get the pamphlets. Not from England, of course, but from the British Propaganda Office in Lisbon. Bumbling his way inside the following day, he presented himself to the front desk and, pretending to be a student of statistics at the local university, he requested copies of the pamphlets, which the British obligingly delivered to his address the following week. The Germans were thrilled to bits when he handed them over. As the weeks turned to months, he realised that he now had to set his fictional agents to work. With each new report that he wrote, he delved deeper into his imaginary England, pulling names from a phone book and tying them to various war efforts. He drew diagrams of ships that he had seen in newsreel footage at the cinema and then credited the source to one of his imaginary agents by the coast. He described the insignias of various official departments and military regiments that he and his agents saw across the country, some which were based on images he'd seen in various pamphlets and some which were entirely fictional. If he ever made mistakes that the Germans picked up on, he turned the situation onto them, claiming their intelligence to be out of date and backing his own information as the current truth. His Spanish handlers could not believe their luck. Until now, the Germans had had a poor track record with installing spies into England. In fact, the British were fairly positive that they had managed to capture and detain every single German spy that had rolled up on the shore since the war had started. It had not actually been particularly difficult, as German spies were frequently poorly disguised. Far from the romantic image of the slick undercover agent, Many of them could not even speak English and were captured within hours of entering the country. With Pujol, or Agent Alaric, they had found a real gem, a man who had been able to not only settle himself in England, but had managed to enlist enough agents to have created an entire network all by himself. Concerned that the pilot story may have become overplayed, Pujol hired a private detective from time to time and got him to impersonate one of his imaginary agents from Liverpool that he had codenamed Gerbers. Acting out the role of Gerbers, the detective hand-delivered a series of Pujol's reports to Frederico in Madrid. With every little deception like this, Pujol's grand lie became that much more real. He even enlisted Aricelli, who was ever keen to help, to approach Frederico and, acting like a suspicious wife, accuse him of being complicit in an affair that she was sure her husband was having. Why else was he being so secretive? It was, of course, all a ruse, and Frederico bought it entirely, ensuring the raging Aricelli that her husband was not having an affair, but was over in England, carrying out an incredibly important and incredibly secret work for the Reich. Things on the Spanish-German front were going more or less pretty well. However, money was becoming increasingly tight. Pujol did manage to fleece the Germans from their cash now and then, and even managed to get them to begin paying his network of imaginary agents, but the money was never really enough to live on, and the British were still not listening to his requests. He had offered his services at least five times by now, and the British embassy was still turning him down. Eventually, Aricelli suggested they try the American embassy instead. In the end, she went herself and demanded $200,000 in exchange for German secrets. Of course, she knew the request was outlandish, but that was never really the point. She simply wanted to gain their attention, and in that respect, her visit was a roaring success. At least, it had been more of a success than anything they'd achieved with the British. Aricelli was given a meeting with an American attaché the following day who was accompanied by a British officer from the MI6. As it turned out, 
The British were not ignoring Pujol quite as much as he thought they were. Back in England, MI6 had become very interested in finding out who or what exactly Arabelle was. There was supposed to be no German spies on British soil, but here was this recurring name that kept cropping up in their intercepted messages and intelligence reports that very much suggested that somehow, somewhere, one had slipped inside the country. In fact, whilst Pujol had sat comfortably in his house in Lisbon, penning his messages in invisible ink, Scotland Yard had been out scouring London for him. It was all very confusing. Much of the information was wrong, and the English knew that, but it had been so detailed. There were detailed descriptions of the movements of ship convoys down through the west coast of England that simply didn't exist. And perhaps even more oddly, Arabelle, whoever he was, kept demanding money from the Germans in shillings rather than pounds. On February the 5th, things finally became clear after a message arrived at MI6 headquarters in London from the British Embassy in Madrid, speaking of a man named Pujol, who had been bugging them to become a spy and offering to double-cross his German paymasters. Acting on a hunch that Pujol may have been the mythical Arabelle, the British contacted Pujol and arranged for him, in true spy novel style, to meet with one of their agents in a cafe who would approach him undercover and announce himself with the phrase, the view is much better at the table by the steps leading down to the beach. When the whole scene unravelled, exactly as he had always imagined, Pujol was delighted and he followed the agent to the table, spilling his entire life story and unwinding the mystery of Arabelle, showing him a vial of German invisible ink as proof. The MI5 agent sat stunned whilst he listened. The entire story was almost unbelievable if it weren't for the small details that made it impossible to be untrue. One of the biggest hurdles for the British that questioned him in their early meetings was how on earth he'd managed to convince the Germans so thoroughly that he'd been busy gallivanting across the English countryside, networking with a host of spies and intelligence gatherers without ever leaving his house in Spain. Eventually, the British conceded that if he'd been able to confound them with his imaginary vision of their own territory, then he surely had the Germans on board. And though it was viewed as a considerable risk, it was obvious that the world he had created could be an incredibly valuable asset. They arranged for him to move to England immediately and continue his work under the guidance of the MI5. He was assigned a new handler, a man named Tommy Harris, a Spanish-speaking art dealer, and given an office in German Street. Pujol had finally gotten his wish. He had become a double agent, and Arabelle had a new, more official role to play in the war, one which, just as he had hoped, would prove to be of everlasting importance. It had been a whirlwind few weeks for Pujol. Sitting in his new office in central London, he had had to quickly adapt to a new country, working for new paymasters who spoke a new language. He also had a new name, christened Garbo after the Swedish-American actress Greta Garbo, the MI5 had chosen it as his codename after the story of Arabelle had made the rounds, deciding that Pujol must surely have been the best actor in the world. Now, Garbo, alongside Tommy Harris, had the daunting task of unravelling his imaginary spy network, correcting it for blatant errors and formalising it into an easily digestible system that they could easily reference when creating their future messages. Under the guiding arm of the British Secret Service, Pujol's imagination was given free rein to do what it did best. At first, his messages continued much as they had done before, except that now the information that Pujol filled them with 
was passed down to him via the British Intelligence Department. It was a complex mixture of fiction, low-value truths, known as chicken feed, and the daily drama experienced by his host of agents. The messages were written in invisible ink between the lines of normal messages that Pujol wrote to family and friends about normal day-to-day life in England, a life that was equally as fictional as his spy network. How the Germans failed to question Arabelle, despite seeing all of the fictional family members he wrote to as cover for his messages, is quite unbelievable and further evidence of Pujol's audacity. Now he was here in England, however, MI5 needed to work out what to do with him and how they could profit from his fake spy network. At first, they chose to simply have him continue on as normal. They siphoned money from the Nazis in order to pay for Pujol's agents and used it to fund the MI5 agents instead. They reverse-engineered the invisible inks that he was sent and they used the German request for information to try and work out what the Nazi war machine was planning. In the spring of 1942, the Germans asked him if he was able to obtain a gas mask and if he could describe the construction, the materials it was made from and what chemicals it used in its filters. Guessing that the Germans were planning on using chemical weapons in their air raids, the British produced a sample of a fake filter which Pujol sent on to Spain. Pujol's first real job, however, came in November of 1942 in an operation that would mark a slight departure for the double agent, turning his fake network into a weapon of disinformation and launching Pujol into a career of direct deception. The Allies were gearing up for Operation Torch, the invasion of French North Africa, opening up a second front against Germany in the hopes that it would alleviate some of the pressure building on the Russian front and securing the Mediterranean theatre on the Allies' side for good. The MI5's role in the invasion was to carry out Operation Solo 1, a campaign of deception that aimed to toy with Hitler's paranoia that the Allies would open up a second front via Norway. This task was handed over to Pujol, who spent the months in the run-up gathering information from his network that obfuscated any movement towards the Mediterranean and fictionalised an invasion force headed for the northern climes. Before long, Garbo was authoring messages that were filled to the brim with information from around the country. His agents in Glasgow were reporting on troops in the thousands training in northern Scotland. They saw cold weather gear being stockpiled as well as barrels of antifreeze. In order to stir in confusion, Pujol mentioned that he had been hearing rumours of a West African invasion, hundreds of miles from the real invasion point, but he told the Germans that he put little stock in them. By now, the Germans trusted Garbo so intrinsically that they took him at his word. One of the biggest struggles for Pujol during this operation was, to some degree, his own doing. His imaginary network was flung so far wide across the country that if they had really existed, it would have been impossible for them not to have seen any movement towards a southern invasion. If he failed to report anything, his credibility would surely suffer, no matter how much trust he had built up. In order to solve this problem, he concocted a story weeks prior to any other information that one of his best agents, a man named Gerbers from Liverpool, was sick in the hospital and that he had been so worried about him that he had travelled up to sea for himself and confirmed that he would be staying in the hospital for the foreseeable future. In order to make it look less suspicious, he told the Germans that he was able to recruit three more agents in his place. Conveniently, all three were just out of eyeshot of any locations of military importance for the invasion. The Germans bought his story wholeheartedly, wishing Gerbers a speedy recovery and praising Pujol for his efficiency in replacing the sick agent. His final masterpiece of the deception 
came in the form of a complete invasion plans. The real, bona fide invasion plans of North Africa, which he claimed he had seen by sneaking into an official's office. He scribbled down the plans in minute detail, including the invasion's location, time and date, all penned in invisible ink in a letter that he sent to the Germans on the 1st of November, making sure it was postmarked with the date. Whilst this might sound suicidal, the letter, of course, was intentionally held up by customs, ensuring that it would not arrive to the Germans until the 9th, just one day after the invasion had started, making the whole thing completely redundant. Despite the fact that the invasion had come on the 8th of November and was already proven victorious on several fronts by the time that the letter arrived, the Germans could hardly fail to praise Peugeot enough. The letter, they said, was magnificent. In their eyes, he had provided them with the exact battle plans. Sure, they were utterly useless, but he had tried his best after all, and it wasn't his fault the post was delayed. It was a perfect ace for Peugeot, who capitalised on the success by killing off Gerbers for good, placing an obituary in the local papers for proof, and just for good measure, enlisted his widow to spy for the network provided the Germans would pay her pension, which they confirmed they would be more than happy to do. After the success of Operation Solo 1, Pujol returned to his daily life of interfering with German intelligence. He gathered new intelligence on German ciphers, handing them over to the codebreakers stationed at Bletchley Park, and continued creating his ridiculous charades, which, at this point, were seemingly just exercises in audacity concocted by himself and Tommy Harris. At one point, they baked a heavily redacted RAF handbook inside a cake that was then sent to Federico in Madrid with a letter that ensured the German spy handlers that the cake had cost Peugeot several weeks' rations and was perfectly safe to eat. They started sending fragments of documents that they had uncovered after Gerber's death that they claimed were written by the agent before he had died. In reality, they were diagrams of airfields and maps of military areas that did not actually exist, decorated with paragraphs of nonsense codes that didn't mean a thing. He claimed to have met a beautiful but somewhat dim secretary working at the Ministry of War, who he felt for sure he could rinse for a treasure trove of information, provided he was able to charm her with his exotic Spanish ways. Of course, such a plan would be fairly costly, all the whining and dining didn't come cheap and so he continued to squeeze the Germans for more and more money every month, who bought his rather stereotypical tale of the charming spy completely wholesale. Things didn't always go to plan for Pujol, however, and in 1943, his wife, Araceli, proved as much with dramatic effect. For some time, she had been tiring of life in Britain, far away from the image that she had held of excitement and adventure. She was relegated to the family home, forbidden to go out and make friends with the local Spanish community through fear of her letting slip any notion of Pujol's existence in London. Now, she wanted to split from Pujol and return to Spain. However, the British Secret Service were not so happy with that idea, fearing that she could turn on her ex-husband and hand him over to the Nazis, blowing the cover of their most prized asset. This wasn't an entirely baseless fear, as Araceli had threatened to do just that when she stormed into MFI headquarters, demanding documentation that would allow her to leave the country. To solve the problem, Pujol turned his skills in deception on his personal life. He devised a plan for his fake arrest on the grounds that he had attacked an MI5 agent after he had been told that he was being deactivated due to his wife's potentially damaging behaviour. Araceli was contacted late one night and told of the arrest. The plan was a success to a point 
in that Araceli signed documents that promised she would refrain from trying to leave the country in future, but only after she had been found attempting to gas herself. The entire affair ensured the safety of Pujol and of his operation, but the severity of the solution did not pass him by, as he wrote in his diary later that night that it was the most distasteful thing that he had done in his entire life. Still, as far as MI5 were concerned, they had managed to secure one of their most prized assets, and they were going to need him. The Allied invasion of Europe was being planned, and Pujol was primed to play a starring role. Not that anyone would know, of course. By 1943, serious talk of an invasion force landing on European shores was in full swing. Norway provided the Nazis with a supply of ore and a base of operations from which they could launch bombing raids on the UK. As such, throughout the German occupation, around 300,000 troops were stationed within the country at all times, and Hitler remained constantly paranoid that an Allied invasion would come through the northern shores. Pujol spent much of 1943 playing on this fear, In truth, the war planners had already delayed any invasion until 1944, but it was Pujol's job not to let the Germans know any such detail. Instead, he and Harris composed messages that suggested the Allied armies were gearing up for something big. He reported large-scale encampments being erected in the south of England, alongside witness reports of training exercises in Scotland. The deception worked hand-in-hand with real-world sources too. Newspapers put out phony articles talking of the coming operation and rows of empty tents were thrown up in order to trick the Luftwaffe's reconnaissance. When he wrote to tell the Germans explicitly that invasion was inbound and confirmed it to be on the beaches of France rather than Norway, the Germans, however, did little different. After the attack failed to materialise, Pujol used the Allied armistice with Italy as an excuse as to why it hadn't happened suggesting that the move had to put a stop to any invasion at the very last minute. The floundering operation showed two things to the MI5, however. Firstly, the Germans were now paying very close attention to Garbo. His reports were now flying straight to the very top of the chain and being scrutinised by the Nazis of Hitler's own war office. This was good news for the British. However, it was also clear that the Germans themselves were much harder to fool than the Spanish Abwehr. It was a troubling realisation, especially as the real operation was warming up and Pujol was expected to play his part. Two months later, by January of 1944, he was back to messaging his Spanish handlers on details of what would become the D-Day invasion in an operation that was known as Bodyguard. It would prove to be Pujol's greatest test yet and if successful, his greatest victory. The plan for Bodyguard was itself relatively straightforward and echoed what Pujol had spent most of 1943 doing. He was not going to attempt to cover for the French invasion, but instead feed information to Madrid that the invasion was going to be a two-prong attack, the first coming in Norway and the second in Calais, the closest French port to the southeast coast of England, separated by just 30 miles of open sea. With so much military bustle happening in the south of England, It would have been impossible for Pujol to pretend neither he nor any of his agents had seen or heard any rumours, and so, for the most part, he fed the Germans chicken feed with an aim to up the disinformation and sow doubt into the Germans' minds closer to the invasion. That was until a British colonel named David Strangeways decided that the plan was utter garbage and tore it up in the face of its authors. Already having played a critical role in the deception of the Germans during the North African invasion, 
Strangeways was no stranger to the disinformation game and had already proved he had a flair for the dramatic by orchestrating such plans as leaving dummy letters of importance inside books to look like bookmarks and then leaving the books where German military officers would be sure to find them. Now, with the invasion of the continent on the horizon, he pulled out all the stops by proposing a new plan, Operation Quicksilver, a deception plan greater than any that had come before. Quicksilver's main aim was to place an army over a million strong on the southeast coast of England, where there existed none. It was a grand ruse to cover for the real invasion force that would be gathering and departing from further west along the south coast of England. Pujol, utilising Garbo's Arabelle network, was tasked with reporting the ghost army. In essence, Pujol was to create the mental illusion, while Strangeways headed up the operation to create the physical illusion. It was more complicated still for Pujol, who had the further task of not only suggesting the invasion would be coming through Calais, but he also had to talk away the real invasion force, which was very obviously headed for Normandy. It was a fairly grand undertaking, and to prepare for the event, he began slowly shifting his imaginary spy network to the south coast of England, feeding a host of truths to the Germans along the way. He never mentioned any particular targets for the invasion, but spoke openly of a great amassing of troops in the south, legions of tanks, boats, and regiments upon regiments of soldiers pouring into Britain from America and Canada. In support of his stories, the newspapers printed phony letters from locals complaining about the Yank invasion of their quiet country greens whilst fake airstrips were laid down, complete with recorded sounds of aeroplanes and men running about waving lights in order to impersonate plane activity. Wooden props of landing boats were constructed and stacked up in ports, and a fake oil facility was erected near Dover, complete with fans that blew the dust around on the ground to make it look like constant frantic movement to any reconnaissance planes that flew overhead, which, as long as they stayed higher than 30,000 feet, the minimum height that the British deemed the deception effective, were left to go about their way to ensure that they would report everything that they were seeing, the physical proof of Pujol's creative writing. In one of the most audacious moves of the operation, a German prisoner of war, Hans von Kramer, the commander of the Africa Corps, who had been captured during the North African campaign, was released and allowed to travel back to Germany. All along the journey through Kent on the southeast coast of England, his car skirted masses of Allied forces, which he naturally told the Germans all about as soon as he arrived back on home soil. Except he had not seen quite what he thought he had seen, or rather, he had not seen what he thought he had seen, where he thought he had seen it. All of the military personnel that he had spotted during the journey had been the real invasion force, and it had been in England. However, he was never in Kent, as he had been told, but much further down the coast where the real invasion force was gathering in secret. At the same time, Pujol continued to sow small seeds of doubt into his reports on an operation taking place in Norway, as well as covering the tracks of the real invasion force that was, by spring, gathering in huge numbers on the south coast of England. In a stroke of genius, Pujol worked disputes among his own agents into his narrative, having the agents serve him up various contrasting opinions, which allowed Pujol to become an analyst himself. For good measure, he would scribble his own beliefs as to what was happening in England into his reports, confessing that he believed some of his agents to be idiots and recommending the information of one agent over another, ultimately sowing confusion deep into the intelligence he was passing forward 
at an ever-gathering pace. There was a rather large problem, however. At the end of July, a week before the invasion of France was scheduled to begin, it appeared that the Germans were not entirely convinced. Hitler himself was sure that the invasion would come through Normandy and wasn't entirely sold on the concept that the first invasion would be a feint for the real invasion that would follow in Calais, despite all the evidence that Peugeot and Operation Quicksilver had provided. Finally, in the days leading up to the invasion, with Peugeot gearing up his reports into a frantic pace, threatening rumours of an imminent launch from the east, the Germans called back the reinforcements they had sent to Normandy, recalling them back to Calais, where they were told to await the real invasion force, which, of course, would never come, essentially leaving the beach's defences as lightweight as could be hoped. It was now down to Peugeot, alongside Operation Quicksilver, to keep them there for as long as they could. With just days to go, Peugeot continues to talk of sightings of winter gear being transported to Scotland, and then, on the night before the D-Day invasion was set to begin, he messaged Spain with an urgent report. For some time, he had been sending his messages to Madrid via radio, and now he told them the radio was of utmost importance. At 3am, he was going to send a critical message. It was Peugeot's job to announce the invasion to the Germans. He was to frame it as an early first strike made up of Canadian and British forces returning from North Africa, a feint for the real force made up of a million or so American troops that were currently stationed in the southeast that would come in the following days to Calais. By the time the Spanish had received, decoded and sent the message on to Germany, the invasion had already begun and the full force of the Allied powers was busy tearing into the beaches of Normandy in their first stop direct to Berlin. At a crucial turning point, three days after the invasion had started, Pujol sent a message to Spain confirming that the second invasion force was on its way to Calais, a timely missive that reached Hitler just in time for him to order the return of all but one of the ten panzer divisions that sat on the French coast to return to Calais. The invasion, costly as it was for the Allies, proved to be a resounding success, and it was in no small part thanks to Pujol's efforts to keep the German forces in Calais for as long as possible. In the end, he was able to stall the German forces in Calais for a full month before the jig was finally up. By that point, however, it was already far too late. Close to a million Allied troops had reached French soil, and by the end of August, Paris was liberated from the German occupation. As the outcome of the war in Europe approached its inevitable end, Pujol's work was done. He had unleashed his masterpiece with his deceptions cooked up for the D-Day landings, and he now had the final task of disappearing. In a final message to Spain, he told his original handlers that he was going on the run and planned to hide out on a rural farm somewhere in Wales. In reality, MI5 had decided that his work was done and decommissioned him, suggesting that he would not be needed to work against the Russians. As it would happen, it would later turn out that the man who had made this decision, Kim Philby, a British intelligence agent, was in fact operating as a double agent for the Soviet Union, and had probably made the decision in order to get Pujol out of the picture, having seen the havoc he could cause. Regardless, Pujol's time at the MI5 was up. He was paid half of the money that he had managed to siphon from the Germans throughout his deception work, a sum total of £17,554, which was well over a million pounds today. He was awarded an MBE from the British monarchy for his role in the campaign, and dined at the White House in America at the personal request of J. Edgar Hoover. In 1949, a report came from Africa that he had died of malaria whilst in Mozambique. 
No explanation was given as to why he was in Mozambique in the first place, but it didn't really matter. All that mattered was that the information was out there in the open. Paranoid that the Germans would seek him out to make him pay for his role in the German defeat, it was all the final deception of Garbo. In reality, Pujo had flown to Venezuela in secret shortly after the war where he remarried, settled down and started a new family, with plans to live out his days in anonymity. It was a ruse that worked for almost 40 years, until 1984 when he was discovered by British historian Nigel West and reunited with his former colleagues of MI5 on the beaches of Normandy for the 40th anniversary of the invasion. During his European visit, he stopped off in England to formally receive his MBE before slinking off back to his quiet life in Venezuela, where he owned a small souvenir shop connected to a hotel and taught English. In 1989, five years later, he died of a stroke, presumably for real this time. All told, his legacy of deception was one of the greatest successes of the British Secret Service. By the end of the Second World War, Peugeot had siphoned over a million dollars in fantasy paychecks from the Nazis. He had managed to pull the wool over the Germans' eyes so completely that even after the war was long finished, there were reports from Nazi officers who knew of Garbo that still refused to believe that he had sold them up the river. Such was the level of infiltration and trust he had gained all the way up the chain directly to Hitler's own office. He had received military honours from both the British with his MBE and the Germans when he received the Iron Cross after suffering a fictitious injury from a V-1 rocket. When he was told he was being awarded the medal, he wrote back thanking them for the honour, confessing that his job was only possible thanks to the agents he had dotted throughout the country. In his diaries during the war, during his days in Spain, when he was adamant that he wanted to become a spy for the British, he had written, If I do one thing, I want to do it well. A wish that most people would agree he achieved with great flair and absolute certainty. So that was the story of Garbo. Uh, Yeah, and a little bit more about that after these short advert breaks. Welcome back. So yes, the story of Garbo, um, pretty interesting. I I love any sort of story to do with spies, to be honest. Um, But yeah, I, I was huge fan of this story uh which who i'd actually heard weirdly um and i, and I didn't really go into it too much but he, he did for a very short period do some disinformation on the v1 rocket um and that's where i heard of it because when i was a kid my grandma who recently passed away or well a few years ago now she she grew up in east london during the second world war and um she would always tell me stories of um you know growing up during the war um when i was a kid and i was like always like absolutely fascinated by it um i i i've you know i, I loved history and i really enjoyed sort of the second world war history um and, and especially like i suppose probably because i was like a little kid but i was like loved the v1 rocket as well because it was called like the doodle bug and that that was like the you know the 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 kind of slang name for it or everyone called it and that's what my nan always used to tell me it was called that's that's you know i never heard of a v1 until i was an adult when i was a kid it it was just a doodle bug that's just what my nan called it and she would always tell me stories about these doodle bugs and um i i just got obsessed with it and then i started to read up about doodle bugs more and more and more when i was about sort of like 10 11 12 years old 
And that's how I eventually came across this story. Anyway, so I, I've kind of always had this story in the back of my mind. And it's only in the now, really, that I thought, oh, actually, that, that, you know, I could do that for Dark Histories because it's a great story about, about old-time intelligence. So I thought it, would, it might work. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really good story. The thing that I find with Garbo is he just reminds me of verbal from Usual Suspects. Um, especially when he's in Spain. If you've not seen the film, it's basically this guy telling a story based on the things that he sees dotted around the room. So he just uses like bits and pieces that are on uh, uh, the wall or the, the make of a mug or whatever. He uses the names he sees to create characters and create this big long story to fool the police, right? I'm sure you've seen it. Um, but anyway, um, that's kind of who he reminded me of because when he was in Spain, especially, you know, he was basically going to the cinema especially to check out the newsreels so that he would then go home and then like create big kind of um, messages to the Germans pretending he was in England and just using the, 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 doc, like the data he sees from these other sources, you know, like newspapers, newsreels and that, as, as if they were real. And, and it really reminded me of verbal from Usual Suspects and... and and weirdly, I, I don't want to make. I don't know how much you really care about this, but it reminds me of myself, and to a degree as well, when I write um, fiction, because when I write fiction, I'm quite often writing about places I've, I've never been to. So, I mean, of course, it's made easier these days with things like Google Street View and that, because you can go in and you can see exactly everything, and you can kind of get some experience of an area that you, you might have not been to. But still, like generally speaking, like when you're writing fiction and you are kind of, you know, just creating stories from snippets of information or, or or bits of you know you're kind of coloring this like this this lifestyle of this character with kind of bits and pieces here and there and even dark histories i do it to a certain extent you know when i write of each episode i give like a little bit of context right um and, and i guess i do the same with dark histories there you know I, I kind of get like snippets of pictures here and there and stuff and i try and create a an image of what it, life might have been like at that time or whatever um, so yeah, I, I find it quite funny, I, you know, when you read him doing this, and it's that so you can see. I so say I could easily see verbal from usual suspects in it, and 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 say like as a kind of creative writer as well, you, you kind of see bits of that in his work as well, and it's really interesting how that thinking at the time was both quite out there, um, at, at least as far as the military was concerned. You know that that they were considered like eccentrics. And like the people who work for MI5 were considered the kind of quirky eccentrics and kind of these creative outsiders who they were kind of maybe kind of taking a risk on. And I found that really interesting. When nowadays, you know, the, the, these types of people and these types of thinkers are often paid a lot of money in, in like in think tanks and things like that. Whereas back then they were considered as like a bit of a risk and kind of pushed to one side, uh, you know, especially at the start where the start of the war where the British intelligence was kind of, you know, basically stuffed. I read one story where um, they were basically operating out of this little room down the, down the hall from the prime minister. And, um, and it was like kind of secret and everyone just called it the prime minister's toilet. And they just said, Oh yeah, don't worry. That's the prime minister's toilet. Don't you don't, don't go in there kind of thing. And that was what it was. It was just this kind of crappy little office stuffed down the corridor. So, you know, I, I find that quite interesting how, yeah, the um, intelligence service kind of started from there. Um, and the really interesting way that contrasted with the German intelligence in this story, um, although the German intelligence is a, is, a, is almost a, another 
level but equally as catastrophic because the British service was like small and, and kind of crap and not very well organised um, and it kind of developed into something better that probably paid off for being small actually and being quite um, interlinked and intimate um, in terms of the command chain and stuff. And the Germans had the complete opposite. They had this ginormous kind of industrial scale thing, but it was so fractured. And 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 when you really look into it, the, the German intelligence at the time, it was really badly organised, actually. Heads of departments vying for completely different ideologies, almost. But the whole thing was like this sprawling operation that was really industrial and impressive <clears throat> in its scale, but just really poorly executed, I guess. Um but yeah, so it's. I think that that the context of this story really is really interesting, and I'd recommend um, anyone like to read around it if you're interested in it. There is a book on this um, by Stephen Talty called Agent Garbo, the brilliant eccentric secret agent who tricked Hitler and saved D-Day, which is kind of the similar story as what I've just told. It goes into much more detail, of course, because um, it's a whole book. So I'd kind of suggest that. And then there's a, there is the one by Nigel West as well, which is just called Operation Garbo. And that's really good as well. Um, but also, like, just, just books about, like, the intelligence so, or secret intelligence of um, World War II from, like, all sides is just fascinating, period, because it really shows, like, the development of the Secret Service before the Cold War and how it really paved the way um, to, to what happened in the Cold War, you know, what ended up with the Cold War. And it really, um, you can really see clearly how things progressed to that state. You can really almost see the, the natural evolution. It's, it's, it's really fascinating. So, yeah, um, that's that. Uh, I don't know if there's that much else to talk about, really. It's quite a simple one, um, other, than the, other than that, you know, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting story. So, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. If you would like to uh, get in touch with me, you can do so. Uh, the email to do that is contact at darkhistories.com. The links for that are in the show notes, as are the links for everything else like uh, social media and uh, the website, darkhistories.com. If you go there, you can sort of kind of see everything. We've got like merch. Um, the Dark Histories books, uh, the link to the um, Discord as well if you want to get involved in the community there. Um, and, and, and if you'd like to support, which, um, you know, if, if you would like to, that, that would be amazing. If not, no worries. So, yeah, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, I'll see you very soon. Take care. Sleep tight.